You're listening to the Seabreeze Church Podcast. Good morning, everyone. Good to see you today. Uh, this summer, we are doing a series of messages called The Divine Conspiracy, and we are considering the words of Jesus that are found in the New Testament book of Matthew, chapter 5 through 7. These three chapters are now commonly referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. That's, that's because Jesus spoke these words from the side of a mountain. Really, it was more like a, a hill, but in those times, it appeared to be a mountain to them, and so that's what it was called. But the reason Jesus spoke from the side of this, this hill was so that the large crowds who had gathered to hear him could have a chance to hear him speak. And these words in these three chapters really are pretty much a, an announcement or a description of what Jesus came to do, as well as an invitation to join and follow him in his cause. Now, for centuries before Jesus arrived in the Old Testament portion of the Bible, the prophets had described God's next big move on earth as the arrival of his kingdom, a kingdom from heaven that would directly rule here on earth. And so the Jewish people, having spent centuries being told that they are the people of God, they just assumed that what this meant was that God was going to use them as a nation to pretty much conquer the world, and then he would rule the world through them as a nation. So it was a a very nationalistic view of what the kingdom uh, from heaven was really going to be about. And so when John the Baptist started announcing to everyone in Israel that they should repent, they should confess their sins, and get themselves ready because the kingdom of heaven was at hand, it was close by, excitement began to build. Buzz began to go throughout the nation. And then on one occasion, John the Baptist pointed to Jesus as he was walking towards him and declared that this is the Messiah. This is the the promised leader of this kingdom who had been prophesied about. And so there was a tremendous following beginning to occur uh, pretty much in the countryside. And then the cities began to hear about it. And people were traveling just to hear Jesus speak and to begin to see him do miracles. And so it was in this context that Jesus stood up to speak about this kingdom, this kingdom of heaven that everyone was expecting. And at this point, everyone was expecting Jesus as he spoke from this mountain to kind of announce his grand plans of conquest. So you have to understand how shocking these words must have been to the average listener who was expecting kind of a a political, maybe a military kind of speech. But instead, Jesus talked about plans that really got into the detail of their personal lives. It involved them more personally than any kind of grand worldwide schemes. Jesus talked about plans for how they might love God better and how they might love each other better. And that's because it turned out that God's big move on earth, this prophesied move, was was more like a divine conspiracy involving normal people rather than a big visible conquest involving powerful people. And so in this Sermon on the Mount, Jesus outlines his behind-the-scenes plan to bring about change in the world. Now, everyone, both then and I think now still, agree that this world is in desperate need of change. The big question is, how do you change the world? 
I don't know if you've heard the, the Disney commercial. It's been out for a few months now, but recently I saw the Disney commercial that's celebrating their 100th anniversary. If you've seen it, you, you may remember the opening line, but this is how the commercial begins. What if a mouse could change the world? What if a mouse could change the world? Now, of course, the mouse they're referring to is Mickey Mouse, right? Now, there's no denying the cultural impact that Disney has had on our world, but changing the world? I think that's a bit of an overselling of Mickey. I don't think Mickey really has changed the world. So why would Disney say this? Well, Disney is many things, but they're not dumb. And they know that we all know down deep in our hearts that this world is in desperate need of change. The past three years have made that abundantly clear to everyone. They also know, Disney also knows that none of us really know how to change the world. So, why not Mickey? We can't do it. Maybe a mouse can do it. Well, Jesus arrived on this earth 2,000 years ago with a real plan to change the world. Not a mouse plan. A real plan. The change he brought was so significant that it actually split our calendar into two parts. There are the years that we count before he arrived and the years that we count after he arrived. Every time you say 2023 or write it or type it, you are referencing the birth of Christ, even if you're not thinking about it. So his plan for changing the world has really had significant effect. His plan was not big and visible. It was, as I said, it was more like a conspiracy, which is why we're calling this series The Divine Conspiracy. It was a behind-the-scenes plan. Really, it's a plan to change people deeply on the inside, one person at a time. And then as they change, they become agents of change in the various parts of the world that they live in. Jesus describes this plan in this Sermon on the Mount as a salt and light plan. Like salt, these people who are changed by him begin to flavor everything around them. And like light... They shine in the middle of the darkness of this world. So let's listen to the words of Jesus as he describes this. Matthew chapter 5, 13 through 16. You, Jesus said, are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, <clears throat> how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So let's just let the, the phrase, the two phrases really sink in. You're the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. In this part of the sermon, Jesus is really inviting them, and by extension us, to join him in this world-changing movement, to become like salt and like light in this world. So let's just think of these words. It starts out with the simple word, you. This is as if Jesus is pointing his finger at you and at me. This is speaking to us individually. It's an invitation to accept Jesus as our Savior the one who can forgive our sins, and our Lord, the only one who can lead, him, lead us and follow him. 
But it's not just an individual you. It is that, but it's also a collective you, or as the Texans say, it's a y'all. It applies to more than just an individual. And that's because we can't change the world alone. So we join this movement of following Jesus individually, but we follow him collectively. Those are the two parts of the you. And then he says, you are. Not you have the chance to become, you might be, you are. You don't earn the status of salt and light. At the moment you decide to give your life to Jesus and follow him, you are salt and you are light. You may not feel like a world changer, but you are. And then the word thee. As a follower of Jesus, you and I are not just one of the many possible ways in which this world might be changed. We are the way, God's way. Not because we're the smartest people or even the best, most moral people, but simply because of the fact that the very presence of God is working in our life to begin to affect change around us. And then the three words of the world. What this is saying, what Jesus is saying is, you can scour the entire world and you will never find anything that has the power to change the world like this. There's nothing in all the world like the power of Jesus to change us. So what is our part then in this world-saving plan? If this is God's plan, if this is his conspiracy, his kind of hidden plan that he's letting us in on, how do we participate? What's our role in it? Well, we are salt and we are light. As salt, we are to cooperate with Jesus in his lifelong project of changing us. We aren't changed immediately the moment we decide to follow him. We begin to be changed at that moment. And as salt, we continue that project to be different in the right kind of way. And then we are light. We are to cooperate with Jesus also in his lifelong project to position us around people in places of darkness so that we can be light. We are not to gather in some area where there's more light than any other area so we can feel better about ourselves. We are where God has placed us, no matter how dark it is, for a purpose, to be his light in the world. If we all gather together, the purpose of the light is not going to happen. So if we're going to join God in this world-changing plan, what I want to talk about this morning is the, the everyday implications that this has for you and for me. If you've decided to follow Jesus or if you're considering it, this is what this part of the conspiracy, your role, my role in it, looks like on a practical daily basis. Number one, if we're going to be salt and light, we need to be real about our faith. This really focuses mostly on the salt part of the salt and light plan. Be real about your faith. Allow your following of Jesus Christ to change the real you, not just the persona, not just you know, the outside image, but the real you. One of the largest barriers that I found over the years for people considering Christ is that they've run across Christians who are just obnoxious. And sometimes 
I think Christians become agnostic because I don't know why this is exactly, but we tend to get it into our heads that God has placed us on earth as his followers to serve kind of the function of the moral police. You know, we, we are here pretty much to um, shake our heads at all the wrong that we see. Now, nobody likes being pulled over by the police. Now, if you're a police officer, we are grateful for your service. But if you're a traffic officer and you pull someone over, you know, no one is like, oh, great. My day is getting good. No, no one likes that. In fact, recently, as my wife and I were driving up to Canada uh, last month, I was pulled over by um, state police in, in Washington state. And I, I, it, I can't remember the last time I've been pulled over. It was a long time. I had to think about it now. What do I do? Oh, yeah, no sudden moves. Don't get out of the car. Just kind of went through the list here. So the officer came up to my wife's side of the window, and, and this is what he said. Sir, why were you speeding doing 69 miles an hour in a 60-mile-an-hour zone? Yeah, I started, almost started laughing. It was like, speeding? That's not, I didn't, I didn't say it, thankfully, but I thought, that's not speeding. I mean, where I'm from, that's not even keeping up. <laughs> 69 to 60, I'm, I'm being passed. I'm, I'm impeding traffic at that point. So I, that's why when he pulled me over, I was just, what did I do? Is something broken? Is, I mean, it can't be speeding because I was only nine miles an hour over the speed limit. But that was speeding in this part of rural Washington. Now, as I said, thankfully, I didn't say anything, and gratefully, he just let me off with a warning. I was very grateful for that. But did that encounter with the state trooper, did that change my driving habits? For a little while, <laughs> right? I, I realized, really, until I got into Canada. And then it was kilometers per hour, and I could just, I don't know what that means. You know, I know there's the little numbers on the inside, but I could claim ignorance at that point. But now I'm, I'm back, honestly, I'm back to my normal driving habits. Why? Why didn't that change me? Well, whether it's something small like traffic decisions or bigger moral decisions, external pressure never changes a person. It just modifies behavior for a while, as long as the consequences look like they're in place. For every one of us, real change occurs from the inside out, not the outside in. It's when our heart, which means really our want to, begins to shift, that we begin to change. Well, what causes a heart to shift? It occurs when we taste or experience something that is appealing to us, something that we want that is not true of us. And that is our role as salt in this world. Our role is to let the words of the Bible change us to let God use those words to change us and the way we actually do life and treat people so that other people around us can get a taste of what it really means to follow Jesus. That's what salt does. It, it improves flavor. If you're buying something at the store and it says low salt, it also means low taste, right? That's just part of what that means. It's not going to taste as good. It may be healthier, but it's not as tasteful. Now, if you ever travel to India, you'll be struck by the smell of the strong smell of curry. And the reason is, 
it's in, it, I think it's in everything. And you can smell it everywhere. Now, the reason I say that is because salt is very different than curry. You can't smell salt. You have to taste salt. This is the kind of impact that we are to have as Christ followers. Salt impact, not curry-like impact. In other words, we are to be different in ways that improve the taste of things, but not so powerful and overwhelming that people just can't get away from the smell of us. It's got to be the taste. You can smell at a distance, but you cannot taste at a distance. This is why God has placed you in the neighborhoods he has placed you. I know you rented that apartment. I know you bought that house. But God was behind that. This is why you work where you work and why you are at school where you're at school. Wherever it is that you are, you are to be the salt in that part of the world. People are close enough to you where they can get a different taste. So let me give you some specific ways that people can taste real faith in Jesus Christ. These are some specific ways that it shows up. I'm just going to give you four. This is not an exhaustive list, but this is just to give you a sense of, of the kinds of things that Jesus brings about change-wise in our life. So here's, here's the first one. Speak well of others. Most people don't speak well of others, do they? In fact, if you're in a crowd and you speak well of someone who's not there, people almost don't know how to respond. If you speak poorly of someone, everybody knows how to respond. You pile on. But we are to speak well of others, especially those in authority. That's very unusual. That's a very different flavor. You know, Ephesians 4.29, the New Testament makes this very clear. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. If your words over time become like this, you're going to taste very different from most conversations people have ever heard. Another example of this salty difference, ask for forgiveness. You know, people almost never admit when they've done something wrong. That is not the way we as followers of Jesus Christ are to be. Jesus, in a, a few Sundays from now, we're going to talk about this one in Matthew 5, 23 through 24. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, Jesus says, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Jesus is saying... If there's a break in a relationship, you may not be able to fix it, but this should be your top priority. And if you've done something wrong, that means you need to ask for forgiveness. That's very different. You ask someone to forgive you for something you've done wrong, again, they almost don't know what to say. The common response is, oh, that's okay. It's just this very nervous. Can we not talk about this? It's very different, a very different flavor. The third example of the four is work harder than you have to. People rarely do more than is expected of them or, should I say, inspected of them. If you do more than you really have to, if you work harder, that's a different flavor. Why would you work harder? Colossians 3.23 says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. If, if you have someone in authority over you that is Jesus Christ, then you've got a whole different set of motives behind why you work and you work so hard, more than just profit. That's very different. People are going to wonder, why are you working so hard? What's in this for you? The last one, and again, this is not exhaustive. This is just a sample list. Stop complaining and arguing. Very unusual, especially now. 
it is common to complain about your life and about this world and about the people in this world. Philippians 2, 14 through 15 says, Do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe. What this is saying is if you, if you just simply stop complaining and stop arguing, you're going to shine like a star on the blackened darkness of the universe. That's going to stand out. That's going to be different. These are the kinds of flavors that following Jesus brings to a life. Now, of course, the most important aspect of being salty is that you are, in fact, salty. That's why Jesus goes on to say, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Now, if you know much about salt, this is kind of confusing because salt is extremely stable. It doesn't lose its flavor. If you've got one of those old Morton salt things that have been sitting in the back of your cupboard for 20 years... You break that thing open, it's still going to be salty. So what is Jesus talking about here? Well, see, the fact is, when Jesus spoke these words, ancient salt was, was pretty different than the salt we now have in our cupboards. Most of the salt in Jesus' time and place came from the Dead Sea, and therefore it was full of impurities. And what happened to it is if it got exposed to moisture, the salt part would dissolve, and what would be left was just this white powdery, bunch of impurities. That's what Jesus is referring to. So the warning Jesus is making is this. Like the salt of his day, we are not stable when it comes to change. We can change and then we can unchange. And that's because we are regularly exposed to contaminants, to ideas and personal challenges that can dissolve the change that Jesus has brought about in our lives. What this means is this work to be salt is an ongoing effort. It needs to be sustained, and we need help from God, and we really need help from each other. We can't change all by ourselves, and we can't stay changed all by ourselves. And if we don't continue to be salty, the shocking thing Jesus says is we're no longer good for anything. Now, that's shocking. But let me be clear. Jesus is not saying you now suddenly become a worthless person, not good for anything. He's not saying that. He's talking about your role and my role is salt. If we stop being salty, then we can no longer function as salt. And so when it comes to our role as salt, we are worthless. Not we are worthless as people, but we can't really be salt because we're not salty anymore. So how can you tell if you're beginning to lose your saltiness? Well, ironically, you can tell when you become salty in the way our world uses the term. How, when we talk about someone being salty, what do we usually mean? Someone who's upset, right? The saltiness in this verse, Jesus is talking about, is talking about having the flavor of the kingdom from heaven. If you lose that flavor, you start to become salty in the way the world uses the term salty. You become upset and critical of others. Why does that happen? Well, when Christians begin to lose their saltiness, when they, they begin to step back from the change that Jesus has brought about in their lives, they feel it on the inside. They know. But rather than do the hard work of, once again, becoming salty in the right way, they settle for the easier work of being judgmental. You know, rather than turn the criticism inward on themselves, they turn it outward. 
Jesus is going to speak about this a little later in the sermon when he talks about why do you try to get the speck of sawdust out of your brother or sister's eye when there's this big plank sticking out of your eye. That's what we tend to do. Major problems with us, but we can not have to deal with this if we're dealing with someone else's problems, if we're criticizing somebody else. So what people do is rather than work on themselves, they turn their attention outward. This is why, in my experience, it's often the loudest Christians that are the most tasteless Christians. They try to make up for their tastelessness in volume. So if you find yourself more and more upset with more and more people, check out your salinity. Check out the kind of saltiness that is beginning to dominate your life. The second practical implication of what Jesus is saying is we need to be open about our faith. This is the light part of the salt and light plan. Quite simply put, don't hide the fact that you're a follower of Jesus Christ. So let me read that part again. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are the light of this world, of the part of the world that God has put you in. And like the lights in this room, you know, see how they're all separated? We didn't gather them all in that corner. They're positioned so that people can see. We don't cover them up. You don't put a blanket over them. Having positioned them, you let them shine. And so, again, the point that Jesus is saying is don't, don't hide your faith in me. Let your light shine before others. Be open about the fact that you follow me. Don't be ashamed of me in front of other people. There is a price to let your light shine. Throughout the history of those who follow Jesus Christ, there has been a, a higher price than we have to pay usually. But there is an increasingly high price that we have to pay to follow Jesus Christ. And Jesus is saying, you need to pay that price. So what this means practically is sooner rather than later, people should know that you follow Jesus. They should know that you're a part of a church. They should know that you actually refer to the Bible for help and for direction. They should be aware of the fact that you are praying for them because you pray for them and you tell them about some of that. Now, they should know this not because you awkwardly announce it one day, but because it, it just comes up in the flow of your conversation. So how, how do you actually do that? I mean, let's say you're, you're, you're getting ready to head to church. You're loading the family into the car on a Sunday morning. Your neighbor walks by. Do you loudly say, we're going to church? <laughs> no, don't do that. You're to let your light shine. You're not supposed to take a flashlight and <laughs> blast their eyes with it. No, just in the process of doing life around people and investing in getting to know other people, these kinds of things should come up. But what happens after Jesus talks about the salt and light is he goes on, what we're going to do from, from this point forward in the Sundays for many of them, is he talks about the specific 
dark situations in life where people are going to be looking your way and they're going to either see the light of Jesus or not. Next week, we're going to talk about when you're angry. Whenever something happens to you and you feel the right to be angry, people around you are like, ooh, what's happening over there? And you get a chance to be light in that darkness or not. And then we're going to be talking about what happens when you're tempted to lust. What happens when you're in a really tight spot and you don't know how things are going to work out? What happens when people insult you? What happened? What do you do? How do you respond when people fail you, when they betray you? These are the examples that Jesus gives. Those are the moments. Those are the opportunities. That's where real life occurs. This isn't real life. This is part of real life, but this is not where people can really see the light. It's under the pressure of these moments that Jesus is talking about that you get a chance to be light in that dark moment for you. And make no mistake, people are looking. They're seeing. And that brings us to the last implication is be ready to talk about your faith. And this is important because if you are salt, in the right kind of salt, if you are light in the dark things of your life, there will be opportunities to have meaningful conversations about deeper matters. And so 1 Peter 3.15 in the New Testament says, but in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. In other words, be sure you're following him. And if you do, this is what's going to happen. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. This is saying that if your faith is real, if Jesus really is the one you follow, then get ready to answer the questions that people are going to have about you. Now, the first thought you may have is, I don't know how to answer all the questions in the Bible. It's a big book. That's for the experts to handle. People like pastors like me, that's not what this is talking about. What is the question that people are going to have? The question is, why are you hopeful? Now, they're probably not going to phrase it that way, but that's the question. What, What are you looking at? that I can't see, that makes you hopeful in the middle of this challenge you're facing. They're not going to say, hey, I was reading through Leviticus, and I got to chapter 15. It's really weird. Could you explain that to me? If, if they do, just say, I don't know. I, I don't know how to explain that one. They're not going to ask that. What they're going to ask me is, what's going on? Why are you hopeful? You have no reason to hope in this moment. You have no reason to have any kind of joy. But you seem to have something that I don't have. What is it? Tell me about that. And this is is good because the most powerful content that you can share with anyone is about how Jesus has changed your life. You may not be an expert on the Bible, but you're an expert on you. People don't just ask, they just don't walk up and say, Can you give me a reason for the hope that you have? I've never had anyone ask me that. It usually occurs in a conversation. So how do you get into a conversation about a deep topic like hope? Most likely, you're going to have to bring it up. Not always, but most, most times. So this is why we've talked about this before, if you've been around Seabreeze for a while. We encourage you to write out your story so that you can tell your story in 15 seconds. We call this the 15 second testimony. Now, why 15 seconds? Well, 
your story may be fascinating to you, but to other people, it may not be fascinating. And so our tendency is to wax eloquent about our story, and people just don't have the patience. And so if you can tell your story in 15 seconds, then you will at least know if someone wants to hear more or not. <laughs> so that's the advantage of a 15-second testimony. So here's my 15-second testimony. I'll put it up on the screen. There was a time in my life when I'd lost all hope about my future. I was really afraid. But then I was forgiven by Jesus, and I chose to follow him. And now I have a reason to look to the future with hope. Do you have a story like that? And like I said, if they're interested, the conversation will go on. If they're not interested, the conversation will change appropriately, and that's fine. Now, this didn't just pop into my head one day. I had to think about how to say it. And then I had to actually write it out and, and pretty much remember it, memorize it. And I encourage you to do the same, same thing. How would you describe, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, how would you describe how that decision has changed your life in 15 seconds? Yes, there's much more you can say. But how would you do it in 15 seconds? These are the key components. There was a time in my life. In other words, what one or two words would you use to describe your life before you decide to follow Jesus? Were you, were you angry? Were you addicted to something? Were you just a selfish jerk? What, what was it? How would you describe it? But then I was forgiven by Jesus and chose to follow him, and now I what? How are you different in one or two words? Now I, I'm still tempted, but I, I have tremendous freedom. I never thought I'd, I'd be free of that drug or that habit, but I am. Now, I can still get into selfish mode, but not nearly as often. I'm much less selfish. What, what is it? What has changed? And then the question, do you have a story like that? It doesn't have to be these exact words, of course, but it's good to have a question that asks them what they think. Because this is not a presentation. This is not an awkward moment where you just kind of launch off into this 15-second pronouncement, and then there's crickets, and they're like, what was that? This is a conversation. So when you ask a question, then it keeps the conversation going. So ask and see where it goes. Now, if you want to learn more about how to do this, if you might forget this, on our app, on the top of the banner, we've got a banner that, that basically takes you to a YouTube video just about a minute and a half. It's not 15 seconds. It's about a minute and a half. to talk about how do you put together a 15-minute version of your story. So I encourage you, if you're interested, you can just use the app to do a little more research on that later. Now, many of you um, have been praying for me and my family as we uh, grieve the death of my dad from just before Father's Day, and I, I am so grateful for uh, your kindness, uh, your prayers uh, towards me and my family. Uh, my dad was, uh, had been struggling with uh, growing dementia over the last about three years or so. What was interesting, and what often happens with dementia, is his mind was going, but his body was fine. I mean, he was 86, so he wasn't 20, but no, no cancer, vital signs were good, no major organ problems. But then he decided, uh, and he just announced this, 
that he was ready to see Jesus, he was at peace, and he decided to stop eating. And he began to pray, and he asked us to pray that Jesus would take him home. So we began praying that. And I've, I've seen a lot of people pass, but this is pretty unusual. In, in six weeks, he was gone. And one of the questions I have struggled with and wondered uh, leading up to that was, what happened? Why? why? I, mean, I know the dementia was getting worse, but why did he make that decision? And of course, one of the struggles with dementia is you, you can't often have those kinds of conversations. So, but I was able to have one conversation with him when we were up there uh, in Canada, and he said something that I think, I don't know, but I think might be what triggered his decision and his prayer that God answered. He told me at one point, he said, in a moment of clarity, he said, I, I, I know that I'm losing control of my mind. And he said, I am so afraid that I'm going to say something that hurts someone. And he said, I don't want to do that. And that's all he said. And as I was thinking about it, I thought, I bet you that is part of what he's thinking in his mind. Having spent most of his adult life following Jesus and trying to be the right kind of salty, he didn't want to become the wrong kind of salty. Even though dementia is not someone's fault, he wouldn't be morally responsible for that. But he knew, and he just, he just didn't want. So he asked God to take him. In the final weeks of my dad's life, um, his dementia was getting worse. And it got to the point where he was just really struggling just to get words out, to even be heard as, as, as he was getting weakened. His, he was having a hard time just speaking words, let alone intelligent words. But in my final time with him last month, there was one thing that he kept saying, and he said this over and over and over again, and everyone that went to visit him heard this. And I'll put it on the screen. This is what he said. Jesus is my Lord and Savior, and the Bible is my guide. Now, he got this. If you've been around Seabreeze for a while, you recognize this, because he got this from being at a Seabreeze baptism a few years ago. These are the two questions that we ask everyone that we baptize here at Seabreeze because it really summarizes what it means to follow Jesus. We ask them, is Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior? And then we ask them, is the Bible your guide? Is, is, is the Bible what guides you through life and helps you make your decisions as an authority? And my dad thought that was great when he visited years ago. And I think as my dad's mind and life were fading, it seemed to me like he was clinging to this as almost like the one remaining anchor in his mind. And he wouldn't just mutter this to himself, as he would most words. He would, he would kind of try to raise himself up in the bed, and he would fill his lungs as much as he could with air, and through his weakening voice, he would say this loudly, as loud as he could. 
And he would just announce this in the middle of conversations. Jesus is my Lord and Savior and the Bible. And it was, um, again, I think he just he wanted to be salt and light for as long as he could. Now, my dad was not famous. He was not wealthy. But he was one in a long line of world changers to follow Jesus Christ and join in this divine conspiracy. And I'm another, and many of you have joined as well. Let's pray. Father, our world is full of darkness and full of brokenness and full of pain. And we are in desperate need of seeing change brought to this world. And oftentimes we know this, but we dismiss it because it seems like a problem that's too big for little old individual us to do anything about. But Jesus, you have given us the chance to attach our lives to yours and to be a part of this movement of change that split our calendar in two. So I pray that you'd help us to see the opportunities in front of us, to be light and to be salt. And particularly when the darkness descends on our own life in our own world, that we would be different because of you. You would help us to be salt and light. That as we look to you, people might look at us and see that we're looking at something that they don't see, and they, they might wonder and ask and come to know about you. We pray that you'd help us to be salt and light this week, this afternoon. We pray this now in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Seabreeze Church Podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, seabreezechurch.com. Thanks again for listening in, and we hope you'll join us next week for the Seabreeze Church Podcast.